Miracy. Hey, Andrew Chapman here, a writer on the Miracy FM podcast team. If you're like me, you enjoy listening to Making It to hear entrepreneurs tell us about their interesting and inspirational paths to success. And that's why I'm here to tell you about a fantastic addition to the Miracy FM podcast network, Teacher Tom's podcast, Taking Play Seriously, hosted by the brilliant teacher Tom Hobson. Just like Making It, Teacher Tom's podcast explores unconventional paths to personal and professional fulfillment and fearlessly challenges the norm. And Teacher Tom himself is an amazing entrepreneurial story. So to give you a sample of the show, I've got an episode for you right here in your feed. In this episode, Teacher Tom's guest is Dr. Denisha Jones, who unravels the complexities of education justice and how it affects the practice of teaching. I chose this particular episode because she's a powerhouse innovator who absolutely embodies what it means to be making it. So sit tight and enjoy our newest show right here on Miracy FM. Something has gone wrong that we've made kids uncurious from kindergarten to 12th grade, right? And that's what the entire schooling is. We take children who are naturally curious and engaged and want to know and want to do and want to learn, and we put them through a system that said, you can only do and learn the things we deem are important, when we deem they're important, and how we deem they're important. Hi, I'm Teacher Tom, and this is my podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Denisha Jones, a former kindergarten teacher and preschool director who now serves as the executive director of Defending the Early Years, a nonprofit organization committed to a just, equitable, and quality early childhood education for every child. Denisha is a part-time faculty member at Sarah Lawrence College and the School of Education at Howard University. She's on the steering committee for the National Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action and is the co-editor of the book, Black Lives Matter at School, which was published in 2020 by Haymarket Books. In this episode, however, Denisha and I will be talking about the heady topic of liberatory pedagogy in preschool. You may have heard about liberation pedagogy from the likes of Brazilian educator and philosopher, Paulo Freire, or the American activist and educator, Bell Hooks. In a nutshell, liberation pedagogy flips the traditional classroom on its head. By putting the student at the center of the classroom instead of the teacher, pupils have more say in what they learn and how they learn it. It's a pedagogy that is often adopted by teachers who aren't happy with the status quo, those who don't believe the standard classroom setting is working for them or their kids. It's one that is designed to level the playing field by making learning both accessible and tailored to all students. It's great stuff, but most of what's out there is focused on older children. My own experience as a preschool teacher, which I'll talk about later, taught me that the concept can and should be applied to young children. Indeed, it may be even more fertile ground because they haven't had their innate sense of justice beaten out of them. That's why I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest. Hi, Denisha. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you are one of the first people I wanted to talk to on the podcast because I have like a thousand different topics I want to talk to you about. But when we were chatting, when we were kind of planning for this, you told me that you're in the process of of writing a new book. And your topic just was so exciting to me, talking about early childhood liberatory pedagogy, which I think must come from the kind of liberation pedagogy. Where did that come from, this idea for you? And then we can talk about it, applying it to early childhood. 
Sure. So it is kind of academic. I mean, when I was working on my doctorate, I, I, I learned a lot about emancipatory and liberatory pedagogy, the work of Paulo Freire, Bell Hooks, some other folks who were really looking at how do we teach young people for these ideals of liberation in the work that we do. And what I realized, though, is most of the teachers who were doing it and most of the theor- theorists who were talking about it we're all doing it from a uh, older student perspective, right? So it was like high school teachers, liberatory pedagogy, emancipatory pedagogy, critical activist work with young people. Sean Jen Wright does a lot of that. So I'm reading all of this stuff and it seems like, oh, you can't do this type of work until you work with middle school and high school students. And so that's kind of what I went away with thinking. And, and my dissertation kind of worked with middle school students because I wanted to do some of this stuff, right? I'm an early childhood practitioner, but my dissertation was with sixth grade girls looking at oral history and service learning because that was the age group that I, you know, that I ended up working with. But I was still drawn to this idea of what does liberatory pedagogy mean in early childhood. One of the things that I took from Paolo's work is this idea that when you're engaging with people to teach them about the reality of the world and how it is and how it can be limiting who they are and who they can be, right? It's not just giving them information. It's the development of that critical consciousness, that ability to kind of see the world for what it is and your role in that and how to respond to oppressive systems, right? A lot of students are going to school and, and even living in a world that's very oppressive to who they are based on their race or their income level or their gender or their sexual orientation or their nationality, ethnicity, right? And so all of these things are are playing a, a part in that. And so emancipatory pedagogy and liberatory pedagogy, to my understanding, really helps to develop that critical consciousness, which is that ability to kind of understand how that's all happening around you and then make a decision on how you want to move forward in the world knowing that. Most students don't know, right, that there are forces out here socializing us for oppression and, and making it very difficult, right, to to pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness and all of those things that we think we're supposed to get. And to me, an emancipatory and a liberatory pedagogy helps children to see that, right, young people to see that, and then also sets them up so that they can decide, okay, now that I know this information, how do I want to be in this world, right? What difference do I want to make? I think a lot of people think if children learn about the evil forces of oppression, then they're going to give up and be despondent. And that's not true. It's actually when you learn about it later in life, that's when you give up and become despondent, right? Now, can you give us an example of ways that our traditional educational system might be oppressive to everybody? I'm having a few ways I can start with this, but let's go with like just the curriculum in general and what children are being asked to learn. So mm. I recently adopted two kids and they're in high school and they're English language learners, right? They're from another country. So it's very challenging, but you know, I spent a lot of time having to read the curriculum and trying to understand what it is they're trying to learn. And there's so much things that I want them to learn, right? They're new to America. There's a lot to understand. But what they're being forced to learn because of the testing, right? New York State still implements the regents exams, so they have to pass a certain amount of regents exams to get their diploma. Like the curriculum itself is not really relevant to anything that two young people who just moved to this country need to learn. Yeah. I mean, my son is reading poems by Wilden Johnson, and the theme is courage. But the fact that you can only learn courage by reading the writings of old dead white men who really don't matter anymore is, is part of the problem, right? But that's the way the curriculum 
was set up. So the testing is going to make sure that you've learned this poem. And yeah, don't get me wrong. They're throwing in contemporary. He read Frederick Douglass. He read Harriet Tubman. But again, like there's a lot of contemporary things happening right now. If you want to teach courage that you can really teach courage that will connect to a 14 year old boy who like is into lots of different things. But these lessons that these teachers are being forced to teach, they're not really relevant. Right. And so he's not feeling a connection between what he's learning in school and who he wants to be. And he's actually not developing a love for learning. Courage doesn't have to come from reading a poem written in 1865. Like I really just am struggling to understand what any of this has to do with anything. And my daughter's whole global history class is on understanding the causes of the French Revolution. And I don't see how any of that is relevant. And so I just wish that there was more connection and relevance. So one way I would say is that the curriculum is not relevant to the to the lives of young kids of color these days. And that's a huge problem. It's not relevant to other white kids either. Denisha, you remind me when you're saying that is that I just finished reading a series of essays on courage, just coincidentally. And every one of the essays goes to Aristotle, to your point about not being necessarily relevant. Colin Kaepernick wasn't mentioned. A super courageous person. So I think that relevancy is obviously one of the key aspects of, of, of liberatory pedagogy. Oh, yeah, definitely. Relevant and, and, and engagement, right? And, and the way that students want to learn. So the thing what really gets me going on this, right, there's this quote by Carl Sagan, he's a physicist, about how, you know, young kids are full of questions. When he goes talk to kindergartners, they have the best questions, right? Like, why, why, why do we have a nose? And why do we have toes? How old is the world? And, you know, all of these great questions, because they're so full of curiosity. And he says, but by the time I get to high school, they have no questions. They ask nothing, right? Something has gone wrong that we've made kids un- uncurious from kindergarten to, t- to 12th grade, right? And that's what the entire schooling is. We take children who are naturally curious and engage and want to know and want to do and want to learn, and we put them through a system that says you can only do and learn the things we deem are important, when we deem they're important, and how we deem they're important. Right. So so it sounds like there's not as much teaching as co-creating learning with children. I think that the ideas of teaching need to shift a little bit. So we were just talking about this at our Defending the Earliers panel in at the NACI conference in Nashville, right? I think we're taught to think that teaching is me giving you knowledge and information and you receiving it. And that's a big part of FRAIR trying to break down that thing, that it's not this didactic teacher-learner thing. It's more of a collaborative work, right? And so how do we see ourselves more as child development specialists where we are just supporting children's natural development? So a lot of it is the care to the environment, like what are we putting out there to really spark their interest? I don't even like the word guiding, Tom, because it seems so controlling, but like facilitating in a natural way, like you're on hand to answer questions that children have, but you're not constantly trying to get them to make everything a teachable moment. It is a teachable moment, whether you recognize it or not, but how are you just being present and, and either observing them or watching them or being nearby for when they come to you for help? What does that look like, right? That's part of this this liberatory pedagogy where teachers are stepping back. You know, we used to say a child-centered curriculum. I'd say a child-driven curriculum, right? We understand how children develop, and that's the foundation. And we trust children to trust themselves, right? We understand that children want to learn and want to do these things. We have to trust children so that they trust themselves, so that they want to learn. We're all, I think, self-motivated to learn, especially through play. And I think we should talk a little bit about play and how that fits into this. What our schools tend to do is replace that natural self-motivation with external motivators like grades and the threat of punishment and the promise of rewards and all of that kind of stuff, 
when we have this natural motivation already, as you just mentioned. So how does play fit into this, you know, liberatory pedagogy? Yeah, I mean, play is a big part of it, right? So play is a huge part because play is an embodiment of learning and developing all happening, coming together at the same time, right? In this natural state that children naturally want to be in. And so it's, it's the center of everything, right? Like if we just sit back and let what children would call play and what some of us would say is, is free play or true play or however you want to do it, that's when all of this learning and development is going to happen. And so then what becomes the role of the teacher in that space, right? Observe, document what's happening, take notes so that you reflect, right? Even evaluate. You can evaluate what children are able to do if you're just observing them through play, right? You can say, oh, yeah, they can do that. Oh, I've seen them do that. I've seen them grapple with this. I've seen them make this conclusion. I've seen them make this this thought process unfold, right? Because you're able to sit back. And I think helping teachers to see that different role is super important. The teachers who get it, when they see that their role shifts, they get really into what they're seeing happening. And that's been really beautiful. Like they, they see themselves more, more intellectually engaged with what the children are doing. And that's super powerful too. Well, you know, I've always said that the days that I knew I was doing my job the best were the days in the classroom when I came away learning things, that I was the learner as much as the children were. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I'm noticing in the cohort of the folks in Pittsburgh, like they're drilling down on things that are so important to them that they've never gotten to like really explore before. So the kids all go to this one hour of play lab a day and they're like all focusing on different things. One teacher's really looking at how students are building community, right? He's been teaching for 30 years and he's seeing a whole new level of community shift out of the student getting this time for play, right? Another teacher's really into early learning math trajectories and she's seeing math concepts come out in the play and how children are engaging with them. And then she's thinking about, okay, how did I connect that then to the math curriculum so that it's relevant, right? Like in getting them to see how those things are connected. Another teacher, it's all about the literacy. And she's looking at child-initiated literacy through play. What kind of things are they saying to each other? But they didn't have that opportunity to look at these discrete things before, but now they do because their role is to step back and observe the play. It sounds like liberatory pedagogy is as freeing for the teachers and liber liberating for the teachers as it is for the students. That's exactly it. There's definitely a part on this where I'm like, it's not just about the children. I mean, everything's about the children, but what, I, what I've seen, what I need teachers to realize, this is about liberating you, right? It's about liberating them and you because schooling as an institution has constricted what it means to be a teacher and schooling has constricted what it means to be a learner into these very, very discrete things that are hard to open up. And so liberatory pedagogy in the early years is going to toss that up and say, no, right? We're like you said, we're all learning. We're all teaching. We're all learning. We're engaging. We're co-collaborating. We're spending time together. That's very important for young children. They need caring relationships with adults. And those relationships are helping them to really sustain their own engaged learning. Does play uh, in this kind of pedagogy serve uh, children of different neurotypes? Oh, absolutely. I think it even children who are neurodivergent, but also children who are just, you know, culturally, ethnically diverse and come from systems where they have different diverse ways of knowing and being, which might not be labeled neurodivergent, those children would be really helped because there's no one way to be in a state of play and liberatory pedagogy, right? It's really about understanding that we all come to the materials in different ways. We ask questions in different ways. We engage with different ways, right? That's why the you need those open-ended materials that are not very limiting in their function so that children can really explore in different ways. And I think, 
you know, children get to see each other move in different spaces. And they're like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And they get to know who thinks about things in different ways. And then they get excited. Like, this guy's really good at thinking about how to build heavy things. Let's go talk to him about that, right? Like, they see each other as experts in the different things that they do well differently. And then they know who needs help in different things. Let's help him do that, right? Because they're very aware of what everyone else is doing. But when we we have to remove that competition, right? Like, young children aren't really competitive until we push that on them. And then we teach them that learning is competition and you can't help your friend next to you because that's cheating, right? I just love the beautiful, that whole description you had there of children teaching one another. You know, I've always said that the classroom is working best when the sentences begin with let's. Let's pretend, let's go there, do this together, let's, because it's an invitation. I just want to ask you something, you know, we're living this time where, you know, a lot of us in the teaching profession feel somewhat under attack, especially in the U.S., and Paolo Fiore, who I know you're not grounding everything in his work, but he's one of the, the, the leaders in this sort of concept of liberation pedagogy, he was very adamant that educators have a duty to not be neutral. How do you feel about that? You know, Tom, I must say, and I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm just going to say it, I don't want to anger people, but I always thought educators and teachers would always be allowed to advocate for peace, right? And that's all we're saying, right? We're not saying like one side needs to win or lose. We're saying peace. Like everybody put your guns down now because too many people have died across the board and we just want death to stop. And I think to hear people argue against that has really shook me a little bit. But we have to show children that in a time of war, peace is an option, right? That we want liberation and freedom and peace for for all people, for all people. And we're not going to play into the only one side can be free if the other side can't be free, right? And I think that's a really important thing at this time. And I I know it makes people upset and I know it makes people scared. But at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, right, we have, we owe children to see that the world isn't just so black and white, right? You know, even if we're not talking about world affairs, but just teaching children how to be accepting of diversity in different people, right? Trans people exist. And even if, you know, elected officials think you shouldn't be able to say that, they're here and they're people and they and they deserve for you to witness them, right? To witness their humanity. You know, they're they're banning books and words that we can't talk about those things. So yeah, it's it's a it's a really trying issue. But I think if we go back to understanding child development, you know, remember that great poem on what what would they say? Everything I learned about life I learned in kindergarten. Treat others how you want to be treated, right? Be good. Like if we can just get back to these basics that we would teach children, then we should be able to talk about any issue from that starting point. All people do have a right to live. You know, we want all people to live and be healthy and have good lives and have access to water and medicine. And it's not right to, you know, to displace other people. And we, children can grapple with these things, but I, they need us to grapple with them. I completely agree with you. My school was always in an urban setting and you know the children were ready to talk about homelessness every day and they were really deeply thoughtful about it and and you know when I think about play-based learning in general I think about you know the different models we look at like Reggio Emilia or Montessori or even uh, even the Waldorf or Steiner system all of those at some level were reactions to World War II they were actually education for peace we've been doing it for a long time and and I am as shocked as you are that advocating for peace or ceasefires, advocating for everybody having a home, advocating for equality and all this, we're finding ourselves under attack for that. So Denisha, if somebody wants to learn more about what you're talking about here, where should they go? Could you have any recommended reading or anything like that? 
Um, let me think. Bell Hooks, All About Love. I'm reading that. I think that's a really good one because it's about children. Teaching to transgress is also really important, but it's very, it's kind of more academically and not. But I think All About Love is a good place to start for children. One of the tenets that I didn't mention a lot was agency and, and the importance of agency and through play. And so the book, Segregation by Experience, it's called Segregation by Experience, Racism, Learning, and Agency in the Early Grades by Jennifer Adair, Kia Dares, and Kayomi Suzuki Sanchez. That book is really good. They did a year-long study on agency in a first grade classroom. And then they did some interviews with children and teachers. And they really saw how certain groups of children have to earn agency to, you know, non-white children, poor children, while other children are just given it. And so that's a big part. And when we think about play and how play is often something that, you know, wealthier white children get to experience every day while other kids don't, right? You can see that as well. And I think that's important. So that's another one. Well, those are great tips right there. Those are actually a really good place to start. I've read Bell Hooks, but I haven't Mm -hmm. read the other that you mentioned this. I can't wait to order them right away and get them in my life. And I recommend that everybody does that who's interested in this. Denisha, what a powerful conversation this has been and what an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much for doing the work you're doing. I can't wait for this book to come out and I, I hope you get it you know, on the shelves soon. And now you got me going. I'm going to get to prospectus out. Is there some final word you'd like to say to our audience? Sure. I will leave you with my kind of catchphrase, which is play is freedom and play is liberation. All right, Denisha. Thank you so much for talking with me and for being on on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. I didn't start out my adult life as a teacher. I have a degree in journalism with a minor in English. I've been a junior business executive, a freelance writer, and a baseball coach. It wasn't until I was close to 40 years old that I found myself with my own preschool classroom full of three to five-year-olds. I didn't know much that first year, but one thing I did know was that I didn't want to spend my days bossing kids around. So I decided that, in the spirit of the grand experiment of democracy, these children were going to make their own rules. So on that first day of class, we started in an official state of anarchy. And sure enough, within the first 15 minutes of class, a child complained to me. I was playing with that doll and she took it from me. In a standard school, I would have had to trundle over to the offending party and in the role of cop, say something like, no taking things from other people. She then would have been faced with the choice, obey or disobey. If she chose to obey, then the lesson taught was compliance to rules passed down from on high. If she chose to disobey, I would have had to insist or resort to force or threaten her with a punishment. I didn't want to be teaching either of those lessons. Unbeknownst to me, I was taking a stand on behalf of liberation pedagogy. Instead, I was left with saying, oh no, I can tell you didn't like that. And then to the whole group, I asked, Does anyone want other people taking things from them? There were shouts of no and lots of shaking heads. I said, nobody likes that. Why don't we all agree to not take things from other people? And we all agreed. So I ripped a sheet of paper from an art paper roller, taped it to the wall, and wrote across the top, agreements. And then under that I wrote, no taking things from other people. Then a child called out, unless you ask them first. Everyone agreed to that as well. Then, right there, 
in a matter of a few minutes, these free children in an anarchistic society agreed by consensus to a dozen other things. No hitting people, no kicking people, no yelling in people's ears, no throwing hard things at people, no dumping water on people's heads. And to each of them, they added, unless you ask them first. <laughs> we weren't, as a society, talking about consent in the 1990s, but these free children were. There are so many reasons that young children should be free to play. It's the way nature has designed us to develop and learn cognitively, socially, emotionally, and physically. We don't often think about play politically. So many people are just like, well, we need to leave children out of politics. But if we do that, then they don't have the skills to be good citizens when they get older, right? They're not thinking for themselves. But when the adults are able to step back to, as Denisha discussed, become co-learners with the children, to see children as fully formed citizens with both rights and responsibilities. We say that play is equality. Play is equity. Play is justice. And ultimately, play is freedom or liberation. That's it for this episode of Teacher Tom's podcast. A great thank you to Denisha Jones for this amazing conversation. You'll find out more about Denisha at the Defending Early Years website. That's dey.org. And in the show note, you'll find more about her and the link to the website. I'm Tom Hobson, and you've listened to Teacher Tom's podcast, Taking Play Seriously. You can find out more about me at teachertomsworld.com. That's T-E-A-C-H-E-R. T-O-M-S-W-O-R-L-D dot C-O-M. Teacher Tom's podcast is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes shows such as Course Lab and Just Between Coaches. Stay tuned for more fun episodes by following us on the Miracy FM YouTube channel or your preferred podcast player. If you found today's insights valuable, take a moment to leave us a starred review. It will help us reach more people like you. Thanks for playing with me and I'll catch you in the next episode.